Well, good morning. What a beautiful weekend God has given us. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you have some, uh, some good plans to enjoy it this afternoon. Um, if you are newer to Northbrook, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And in a minute, we're going to dive into our last uh, message in our series. But uh, in light of the events that have gone on this week, uh, the shooting on Tuesday and um, the, the scare that Slinger had on Friday, uh, we thought it best if I just open up uh, the service time in prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, my heart is heavy with some of the things that are going on in our world, in our country. I want to take a moment and lift up the families down in Texas whose lives were were changed forever on Tuesday. I realize that as I spend time with my family this weekend, they there is a void in in their hearts, their souls this weekend that um, isn't going to go away this side of heaven. And Father, you say to mourn with those who mourn. So right now, Father, we mourn with those families. We lift them up to you. We pray that your supernatural peace, your comfort, your love would surround them during this time. Father, our words seem inadequate to convey the depths of our our sadness and our wishes for answers that just aren't there. We know you're good, and yet we don't understand why you allow evil like this to happen. And so we bring our doubt and our trust, and we lay them both, and we believe that they can both exist at the same time. Father, I also just pray for uh, families, teachers, um, who this incident has triggered some fears, some anxieties. Father, would you comfort them? Would you work in our nation? Father, would you bring us together as people? We'd be able to find solutions. But ultimately, Father, I pray that you would work in the human heart and you would work in all of us to have wisdom how best to love each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're wrapping up our Mind Games series this weekend. I hope this series has been helpful. If you've missed any of the messages from this series and you'd like to catch them, you can find them online on our website, also on our podcast. Today, as we wrap up our series, uh, I want to talk about the mind game of discouragement. Um, Anyone ever felt discouraged? Okay, a few of you, the rest of you, I'm glad that your life has been perfect. That's awesome. This is not the message for you. Discouragement. I think we all have had days, maybe this week for some of us, was a very discouraging week. I think we've all had days where we are discouraged. Maybe we're tired. Maybe we're burned out. Uh, Maybe we're just questioning what's the point. We can try so hard, and yet so much of life is beyond our control. Well, that's where we're going to sit today, the mind game of discouragement. I want to start with a story from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we read a story. 850 religious leaders are summoned and they gather together 
and they all are against one guy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm that one guy, I'm a little intimidated. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're the only one in the room or the only one in the situation and everybody else is against you. But if you have, you can relate to this story. 850 religious leaders have gathered, and they are all uh, worshipers of the god Baal, or Baal, and his wife Asherah. And against them stands one prophet of the Israelite god Yahweh, and the prophet's name is Elijah. And Elijah has summoned them to this location because the people of Israel, they have begun to follow this false god Baal. Or, in many cases, they've begun to mix worshiping Yahweh and Baal. They kind of want to be able to worship both and get the benefits of worshiping both. And so Elijah summons the people, and he summons these 850 religious leaders, and he asks them to meet him at this beautiful location called Mount Carmel. Uh, We have a picture of modern-day Mount Carmel. It's this beautiful location, a great spot for an epic religious showdown. And so Elijah gathers these 850 religious leaders, and he says to all the people that have also gathered, he says, basically, essentially, he says, pick a side. He says, pick a side, either worship Baal or worship Yahweh, but you can't worship both. And the writer of the story tells us the people are silent. Not a good start for Elijah. So Elijah says, all right, here's what we're going to do. And he he comes up with a, a fire-making challenge. Now, any of you ever watch Survivor? Any Survivor fans, the TV show? I love Survivor. Uh, watch it every episode, never miss. And I've actually auditioned to be on the show. Clearly have not made it yet. But that day will come someday. And in Survivor, if you watch Survivor, towards the end of the show now, every season, they have a fire-making challenge. And in this fire-making challenge, it can literally be the difference between winning a million dollars and losing a million dollars. Well, Elijah, way back before Survivor, starts the first original epic fire-making challenge. And he tells the prophets of Baal that he wants them to build an altar and then call on their God to bring down fire. And if their God brings down fire, well, then he will acknowledge that Baal is the one true God. The people should serve Baal. And in all reality, though the writer of the story doesn't tell us this, if Elijah loses, what is going to happen to him is he's going to be killed. That's what happens when you're a false prophet in those days. You get killed. That would put a lot more pressure on pastors if we implemented that, I think. But anyway, Elijah's going to be killed if fire comes down. And so he says, you do that, and then if, you, if your God doesn't, then I get a chance, and I'm going to call on my God, Yahweh, to bring down fire. And if he brings down fire, then I obviously win, and Yahweh's the one true God. And they agree. So he lets them go first. So these 850 prophets, they, they assemble this altar with firewood, a sacrifice, and they begin to pray to their god, Baal. And they begin to dance and shout and scream. And they actually, the writer tells us, they cut themselves with sharp objects, drawing blood, trying to get Baal's attention. And this continues for about three to four hours. And nothing happens. And it finally hits noon. And this is why Elijah is one of my favorite Old Testament characters, because eventually Elijah just can't help himself. And he starts trash-talking. He starts taunting. It is awesome. He starts saying things like, hey guys, I think I know what the problem is. Your God's a little hard of hearing. You need to, get, you need to be a little louder. He says, uh, guys, I, did any, anybody check his nap schedule? I think, you're, I think your God's napping. You might need to just shout a little louder, wake him up. And then later on, he's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 time out. Did anybody check his schedule? I think he's on vacation this week. I think that's your problem. Right? He is just taunting them. Like, 
and nothing is, nothing is hel- helping. For three more hours, they continue screaming, yelling, shouting. At this point, it is about three or four in the afternoon. They have been dancing, screaming, shouting, cutting themselves for six to seven hours, and they are exhausted. And finally, Elijah's like, okay, enough of this. It's my turn. And so he builds his altar. He puts the wood and the sacrifice. But Elijah doesn't want to just win this challenge. Like, he wants to destroy his opponents. And so he calls for four large jugs of water, and he pours out the jars of water on his altar. And then he does that three times. Three times four. Twelve times in all, he pours these huge jars of water. And so the wood is soaked. The sacrifice is soaked. Underneath is soaked. Oh, and by the way, what the author doesn't say, but is implied if you're reading through the, old, the whole entire story, they're in a drought right now, and water is hard to come by. Elijah has just wasted 12 jars of water on this altar. If he doesn't win, the people are going to be upset. And so he puts all of this water on the altar, and then he prays a fairly simple prayer. He doesn't dance, he doesn't shout, he doesn't scream, doesn't cut himself. He, he prays a simple prayer. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And he ends the prayer and the people are like, well, now we wait. And then boom, it happens. And immediately fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood. The writer tells us even the stones are burned up, which is in fact possible. I checked. And the people take a look at this and they go, yeah, I think we're going to go with Yahweh. And the writer tells us that they round up the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah and they kill them. And Elijah prays and rain begins to fall. And it is this amazing, beautiful moment for Elijah where he has won. He has defeated evil. He is the man. He's caused rain to come down. It's this literal mountaintop moment where life is perfect And he lives happily ever after. Or not. That is the setup. Some of you like discouragement. This sounds pretty good so far. That is the setup for what we're going to read through today. So after all of that, the story continues. First Kings 19. Now Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, the queen, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Translation, I am going to kill you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Life comes at you fast, doesn't it? I mean, Elijah has just just had this amazing moment where he's victorious, he's defeated evil, and then the queen, Jezebel, hears about it. And by the way, if you couldn't tell, she is a fan of Baal. Baal is her god. She's a little upset that 850 of her prophets have just been killed and, and Baal has been defeated. And so she sends a messenger to tell him, you are dead. And Elijah is just so discouraged, so afraid that he leaves and he walks a day into the wilderness and he sits down under this broom bush. He goes from this mountaintop experience to sitting under a broom bush, maybe looks a little bit like this one, and he wants to die. 
in the space of a day. You ever had a moment in life where life changed that suddenly for you? Like, it was all going great until, right, you're getting great grades, you made it into the college that you wanted, and then you got married, and then you got pregnant, and then you got the job, and then you're tired, had your first grandchild. Everything was going great until something happened and you just were like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? I mentioned before how for about 34 years of my life, like my life wasn't perfect, but it was pretty close. I had a great life, woke up every day excited to be alive, to be doing my job. Everything was perfect. And then around December 2019, a couple things happened a couple weeks apart that just rocked my world. I had panic attacks. I had anxiety. And for someone that has never had anxiety, never had panic attacks, rolled his eyes when kids or teenagers would tell me that they were triggered by something, it was a bit of a shock to my system. And I remember then, of course, March 2020, we all know what happened. And so going from that into COVID was also a bit much. And I remember waking up and having days where I was just like, what is the point? Like so much of life is obviously beyond my control and I can do my best and I can try to do everything I can. And there's just moments where you wake up and things happen and they're beyond your control and you just start wondering, what is the point? I think that's where Elijah finds himself. Like, Elijah has just had the courage to challenge 850 people. He has brought down, asked his God to bring down fire. He has won. He's brought rain. All of that. And Jezebel, his reward is the queen says, you're dead. And I have to wonder if Elijah's like, what else can a guy do? Like, I've tried everything. I did everything God asked. And my reward is I'm being hunted. They want to kill me. What's the point? And so he lays under this broom bush, and he's ready to die. The story continues. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha 
son of Shaphat, from Abel Melhoah to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Today I want to share three thoughts that I have from the conclusion of this story. Three thoughts for those of us that might find ourselves in seasons of discouragement. So number one, first thought for you, take care of your body. Elijah goes to sleep under the broom bush. He's tired. He wants to die. And he wakes up and God sends him an angel. And the angel says, suck it up, buttercup. What the heck are you doing here? Get back to work. No, no, that's not what happens. Elijah wakes up and the angel has fresh baked bread waiting for him. Now, in the Hebrew, that could actually be translated rolls from Texas Roadhouse with the cinnamon butter. Okay, that's not in the Hebrew. I'm just assuming if an angel is going to bring you bread, it's going to be rolls from Texas Roadhouse. But anyway, regardless, there's nothing better than warm baked bread, right? So the angel feeds him. And then what happens? Elijah naps, and then the angel feeds him. And then what happens? He naps again. Two naps. Come on, guy, right? He naps. He eats. He naps. He wakes up. What happens? He eats again. Sometimes in life, the best, most spiritual thing that we can do in the moment is rest. Our bodies and our souls are connected. Sometimes our souls feel weary because our bodies are weary. Sometimes we feel tired at a soul level because we are tired on a physical human level. This is a tough one for me. I love to be active. I'm always doing things. I I don't like just resting Um, for much of my life. If I was resting, I had to be reading a book because at least I could be productive and, you know, like I could have my good reads like, oh, read that book, check that off, like I'm on my way to accomplishing something. And over COVID, God began to convict me of my lack of really resting. And as I started to think about it, I, I had to come to a conclusion that I feel like rest is lazy. And God began to tell me, no, John, rest when it's strategic is spiritual. In Genesis, God creates the world, and he works hard, he's productive, but then he rests. Now, here's the question. Did God need to rest? Like, was God just, like, super tired? Like, wow, he created the animals and, and, and humans, and he's like, man, I am just, I am t- I created the Grand Canyon. That took a lot of work. I am tired. No, God, God's all-powerful. So what was God doing? God was creating a model for us to follow of hard work and then rest. I was listening to a pastor at a conference, and he was talking about how he had a, uh, a pastor that he worked for that was always working. And uh, one day the pastor said, well, the devil never takes a day off, so neither can I. And uh, the, the pastor at this conference, he, he didn't say this to the pastor, but as he thought about it, he, he said, I don't think the devil is supposed to be our model. See, when we look at Jesus' life, you know what we find? We find work and then rest. Work and then rest. Rest is spiritual. When it's accompanied with work, work and rest, they're both spiritual. For some of us this week, the the most spiritual thing we can do is just take some time to rest. Maybe it's a nap. Maybe it's just sitting out on our deck on a beautiful day. We only get seven of them in Wisconsin in the summer. So if you have one, you got to get out there. Maybe it's going to a coffee shop or whatever it is that's just life-giving, that's restful. 
My wife and I, we have three kids. Uh, our daughter's turning 13 Saturday, so pray for us. And I have a 10-year-old, 7-year-old, and a little bit, not so much now, but especially in years gone by, we, we would be, you know, be hanging out as a family, it'd be evening, and one of our kids would just begin to act like things were difficult. There'd be whining and complaining, and life was horrible, and my wife and I, we'd have this look, you know, I think a lot of parents have this look, we'd look at each other, and the look we'd give each other would be saying one thing. It's bedtime. It's bedtime. Because we know once they go to sleep and they wake up, suddenly the world is better. I think sometimes our Heavenly Father looks down on us. And, and he, feel, he, 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 he feels for us. He loves us. He aches when we ache. But he looks down on us and he goes, yeah, you really need a nap. You need rest. Now, some of you are like, John, that... If you knew what I was going through, that, that just that doesn't feel right to tell me all I need is a nap, all I need is to eat. Hear me carefully. I'm not saying that's all you need. That wasn't all Elijah needed, but here's what I am telling you. Often, this is where it starts. The road back to living through discouragement often starts with taking care of our physical bodies, with resting with eating, with renewing our physical bodies. That's not where it ends. It's not the end all. It doesn't take care of everything. It doesn't solve the world's problems, but it starts. For Elijah, it started with resting and eating and then resting and then eating again. Continuing on, after he rested, God asked Elijah to go for a 40-day journey. Now, again, you know, a lot of times when we read scripture, we're like, oh yeah, he walked for 40 days. Big deal. And we keep reading. But think about that. If you were somewhere and God said, hey, I got something I want to tell you, great. Uh, you just need to walk for 40 days and then I'll tell you. I'd be like, are we sure we can't do this right here? Like this broom bush is working for me. If it's working for you, like, let's just do it here. Like, tell me, tell me what you want, me, want to tell me now. God makes Elijah walk 40 days to Mount Horeb. What is the significance of Mount Horeb? Well, Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. And it's the same mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. It is the mountain on which God came down to Moses and gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. It is a place rich with history and meaning for the Israelite people. It is, it is a place full of the presence of God to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And so for God to take Elijah back to the mountain, in essence, what God is doing is he's saying, I don't think you're ready to look forward at what I have for you, so let's take a moment to look back. And that's my second point for, uh, for you. Sometimes when we're discouraged, we got to go back to go forward. Sometimes when we're discouraged, it's, it's difficult thinking about next week or next month or next year. And in those moments, there may be an invitation from God to think back on the goodness of God in the past. Starting with Jesus coming to earth, living and dying on a cross, continuing in the book of Acts, we are here today because of the work of God's Spirit through Christians over the past 2,000 years, many of them being martyred for their faith. All of that is God's goodness to us. And then even in our own lives, some of us have a rich heritage. We have parents, we have grandparents who came to know God and passed down their faith to us. And God's goodness is being revealed to us in our families. Uh, this past week was a big a big week for the Malstead family. My parents celebrated 50 years of marriage on Thursday. And 
And there's a lot of history in that. There's stories in that of how God is, they've seen God at work in our family. Even how my dad came to faith is a story in itself. And, and I'll be honest, in the past couple of years when I struggled, when I had months where I just felt discouraged, one of the things that helped me was reflecting back on the goodness of God in the past. Reflecting back on the moments where I know God has worked in my family. Now, some of you are like, John, I'm a first-generation Christian. I don't have that rich heritage. I don't have parents or grandparents that were Christians. Like, I'm new to the faith. And here's the beauty in that. God had to work a little harder to bring you into the faith. He had to ordain friends or family members or neighbors or people. He had to work a little harder, and you can reflect on the goodness of God to get you to this moment. God was at work before you were born, ordaining circumstances, moments, to get you to this point in your journey. And when you're too tired to look ahead at what's next, maybe there's an opportunity to reflect back. To reflect back on the goodness of God. God brings Elijah to Mount Horeb, and it's purposeful. It's so that Elijah will reflect back on the goodness of God in the past to the Israelite people. God asked Elijah, so Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've tore down your altars and they put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah vents. God asks Elijah what he's doing there. And Elijah vents. And here's what I love about this story. God doesn't condemn Elijah for venting. See, sometimes I think if we grew up in church, you feel bad actually like venting to God, actually telling God what you, how you really feel, right? It's like, nope, I got to come to God with joy and thanksgiving. And yes, that's true, but... You can also be real and raw with God. We see that in the Old Testament scriptures and the Psalms. We can be real with God. Elijah comes to God. God says, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, Here's, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. Life's horrible. That's what I'm doing here. And God doesn't say, shame on you for thinking that way. Have a little faith. God just lets him vent. And God doesn't really even answer him. God just continues on. And God has him stand out outside the cave, and, and, God, and the, the writer says that a wind comes by, an earthquake comes by, a fire comes by, and God's not in those things. And now there's a lot of different Bible, Bible scholars with a lot of different interpretations of this. I'm going to give you my interpretation, just one pastor's interpretation, so take it for what you will. The writer says God is not in the fire, the wind, the earthquake. Here's my question. Is God ever not in something? God's in everything. So what does that mean, God isn't in the fire, the wind, the earthquake? Here's what I think it means. I think Elijah wasn't impressed by the fire, the wind, and the earthquake. It's not what Elijah needed. Elijah had already seen God bring down fire from the heavens on an altar just 40-some days before that. Elijah was well aware of the power of God. Elijah didn't need a fire. He didn't need an earthquake. He didn't need a wind. He didn't need to know that God was all-powerful. He was well aware what Elijah needed was silence with God. That was what Elijah needed. See, some of us, we, we fill our schedules and we're so busy. We run from one thing to the next and we go, 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 go. And it's all busyness. And what we really need when we're tired, we don't need more activity. We need to just sit in the silence with God. We need to put away our cell phone. Who cares what they're saying on social media? Who cares what they're saying on the news? If someone needs us, they'll figure out a way to get a hold of us without our cell phone, just like they did for thousands of years. 
Elijah's, Elijah's not impressed with the fire, the earthquake, or the wind. That's not what he needs. And then God comes to him in the silence of a gentle whisper. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I'm expecting for Elijah to say something really profound. I mean, now that God has done all that. But Elijah says the exact same thing again. I'll tell you what I'm doing here. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put to your prophets to death the sword. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me too. And he vents again. And what I love is again, God doesn't get mad at him. God is patient. In fact, God doesn't even address what he just said directly. Practically ignores it. It's almost as if God says, all right, I let you rest. I let you eat. I took you back so you could reflect on the past. I've come to you in a whisper. I've given you time. I've let you vent. Now we got work to do. And God invites Elijah back into the work. God doesn't even address what he says. He just says, okay, here's what I want you to do now that you've vented. I want you to go anoint a king. I want you to go find your mentee. His name's Elisha. And then God says something really interesting. It's almost like an afterthought. It's like the last sentence. God says, oh, and by the way, you're not alone. I got 7,000 people that are on Team Yahweh. Which brings me to my last thought for you, and that's number three. When you're feeling discouraged, find your people. I think one of the biggest lies that we can believe when we feel discouraged is we're all alone and there's no one that can help us. There's no one that gets us. There's no one that can, that can help us process. We're all alone. That's what Elisha felt. He continues to say it over and over to God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. There's no one like me. There's no one left. Elijah feels all alone. It's discouraging when you feel all alone. It's discouraging when you feel like you're the only sane person in the world. You're the only one that wants things to get better. You're the only one that loves God. And that's just a lie. And sometimes when we feel discouraged, the best thing that we can do is strategically surround ourselves with the right people that are going to help us move forward. God says to Elijah, by the way, I got 7,000 people that are on Team Yahweh. What would it look like to be intentional in this season of life, to do a little better job surrounding yourself with the right people? Maybe it would mean getting involved in a life group, getting involved with marriage mentors, parent mentors, Maybe it would just mean re-engaging with friends or family members, neighbors. What would it look like to surround yourself with the right people in the seasons where you start to feel discouraged? I love uh, this study that some psychologists did at a Coca-Cola plant in Madrid, Spain. They uh, had a group of people at the plant, and they told them they were doing a happiness study. They just wanted them to record their feelings, their emotions over the course of a month. What they didn't tell them was they divided them into two groups. One group they just left alone, let them do their thing for a month. The other group, they asked a few of the people in the group, unbeknownst to the others, to perform random acts of kindness throughout the month. Little things like writing a note, buying a coffee for the other people in the group. Nothing major, nothing big, nothing that was going to take a lot of time. Just simple little things. And they wanted to see if that was going to make any difference in the two groups. If there was going to be any difference. After the course of the month, they were astonished. What they found was the group that had little, tiny, insignificant acts of kindness done had significantly higher levels of happiness than the other group. Significant. 
And when they dove a little bit into those numbers, what they found was that not only were the people that had nice things done for them happier, but the people that were doing the nice things were also significantly happier. And more than that, the people who had had nice things done for them often went and did something nice for someone else. There was a ripple effect of the kindness. You know, sometimes I think we, when we get discouraged, we feel like nothing we do really matters. What's the point? And yet the beauty of being a follower of Jesus is the Holy Spirit uses us as we do small acts of kindness to change the world. You have an opportunity as you wake up each day by showing up to allow God's Spirit to work through you to impact the world. I love the ending of Elijah's story. You know the ending, right? He, he goes on and he anoints the king and he gets Elisha to be his mentee. And then there's a chariot of fire that picks him up and takes him up to heaven. He doesn't even die. Pretty cool. But that's not the end of the story. So you fast forward thousands of years and Jesus is here on earth and he goes up onto a mountain and he brings three of his disciples. And the writer tells us that he meets with two people from the Old Testament. Moses... And Elijah. Jesus meets with Elijah. And it's a private conversation. The writer of the scriptures, uh, that particular story, doesn't know what they say. But I have to wonder if at some point, as Jesus and Elijah are talking, Jesus doesn't look at Elijah and say, Hey, Elijah, I saw you under that broom bush really discouraged. Thanks for not giving up. Thanks for persevering. You know, there are days when I wake up and I look around at the world and I go, my goodness, God, what's the point? School shootings, Christians screaming and yelling at each other on social media, division, injustice. And every week I feel like I see another prominent Christian pastor have some huge moral failing. And I'm like, God, why would these people even listen to me at this point? Your church is so messed up. And I feel like God gently says, John, what are you doing here? And I say, did you not hear me? And I repeat, I do my little vent session again. And then I feel like God says, someday you'll see me face to face. But today I got an invitation for you to be a part of the answer. And that's the bottom line. As we go through life, we all face discouragement. And there's wisdom and rest in looking back on God's faithfulness and finding community. But then at some point, there's an invitation from God to be the answer, to be a part of what God's doing in the world. May we say yes to that invitation. Amen? Amen.